everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Uh, real quick before we get started on the podcast today, uh, wanted to remind you, we got the, the book coming out October 1st. Uh, lots of hype building around it. I actually got a note from the publisher this week saying, hey, uh, pre-sales are going really well. Uh, and told me, you know, Hey, um, we're, we're, we're pretty, we're pretty keen on this book. Uh, people internally have read it. Uh, they really like it. Let me tell you, these are people who do books. So we really like it and, uh, we're extra enthused and he used some like all caps letters about where this thing is going. So I'm telling you, a, you're going to want to get a copy, but B, you're going to want to help us continue to build this momentum. Uh, we're in the digital age, and the the more hits something gets early, the more those little algorithms say, hey, there must be something going on here. Uh, let's show this to other people. And uh, you can help us create that hype by going out and getting the book today. It's called Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. Uh, you can find the link on our website, strongtowns.org, or uh, go to anywhere where you get books, and they can get it because this is a legit big deal. Um, Thanks, everybody. On to the podcast. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Uh, a few weeks back, uh, there was a report that was put out called Where Are Self-Driving Cars Taking Us? Uh, the Pivotal Choices That Will Shape DC's Transportation Future. And one of the authors of that report, uh, a guy named Dr. Richard Ziki, uh, agreed to come on the podcast with us. I think you and I met on Facebook somewhere, and that's where I first saw the report when you shared it as well. Dr. Ziki, Welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Uh, Chuck, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. You, you are with the, or this report was put out by the Union of Concerned Scientists. Are you, are you part of that? What's your relationship with that group? Do you work for them? Yes, I do. Uh, I currently have uh, been, I work with them for the last two years as a, a mobility and equity fellow within the organization. Um, and it's sponsored by... Uh, the fellowship is sponsored by one of our money from in, in honor of one of our founders, Henry Kendall. Um, UCS has okay. been around for the last 50 years, focusing on issues such as climate change, uh, food security, nuclear disarmament, uh, defense of, of um, scientific in- integrity, and also uh, in- encouraging a sustainable transportation. And I joined this organization in 2017 specifically to re- do a two-year uh, project on how do self-driving cars affect uh, low-income communities and communities of color? How can self-driving cars promote um, increased transportation equity and uh, tr- tackle or, um, you know, maybe make worse the inequities that are inherent in our system? Um, so I've been doing that for the last two years. And, and as you mentioned, I put out a report um, that you just mentioned the title of that focuses on uh, those impacts specifically here in the uh, D.C. metro area. I don't know if you know this. Um, I-, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about who the Union of Concerned Scientists is. Uh, a few years ago, I had someone yeah. challenge my license, and I actually had a, a complaint filed against me, basically for, for strong towns, for speaking out and, and questioning engineering practices. Uh, part of the licensing requirement here in my home state of Minnesota says a licensed engineer can't speak ill of licensed engineers 
uh, and I had a complaint filed against me and the Union of Concerned Scientists wrote a letter unprompted by me on my behalf, um, put out a post and, and, and kind of advocated for me. And I, I had to say, I don't know very much about them. So I want to say thank you first. And then maybe you could talk a little bit about mm-hmm. the organization and, and what you all are, are doing and, you know, the, the, the yeah. advocacy you do. Great. Yeah. Um, that's really good to hear that. You know, I've, one of the things that we really focus on at, UC, at the University of Scientist is um, facts and science, right? You know, we are a very unique you know, organization in that uh, we have a number of scientists um, and engineers that are focused on putting out um, sound uh, and quality, high quality um, fact-based research on, um, on issues such as food, sec- food securities is one of our big uh, focus, Spokai. We also look at, of course, climate and the intersection of climate and energy. Uh, so nuclear disarmament, which was, it was actually was the topic that we were founded on back in 1968 by uh, researchers from MIT. Um, and then, of course, uh, we look at we call federal uh, Center for Science and Democracy. We have a, a specific center focused on how do we incorporate uh, more uh, fact-based uh, research into local, state, and federal policy decision-making. And then lastly, we have a clean vehicles program, which is the program that I'm housed in, and that focuses on uh, you know, different topics related to how do we get the transportation system uh, greener and more climate-friendly. Um, so we look at within the clean vehicles um, organization, which I'll talk more about since that's where I'm housed, we look at, we look at things such as um, advocating for policies to encourage new increased fuel economy standards. We look at, uh, really have a lot of great work on the electrification and encouraging vehicle electrification um, in, at the local, state, and federal level. Um, we've just recently got into the autonomous vehicle space because, of course, it's going to have a significant impact on our transportation system, and we've really felt like that we needed to uh, you know, have a voice in that and incorporate some of the other um, topics that we have a very strong um, history in terms of supporting and incorporating that into the AV conversation. Um, so we have, of course, a number of scientists and engineers that put out reports and fact sheets and blogs um, talking about the issues that we support. We also have a very strong um, advocacy arm. So we uh, have a various different ways of doing that. We engage with local uh, citizens and community leaders to encourage them to put out blog posts, op-eds, rapid response email campaigns to uh, either support or uh, push back on policy, support policies that we support or push back on policies that we disagree with. Um, We also do uh, have an organization called the Science Network which consists of a number of uh, uh, thousands of scientists who um, listen to, you know, hear about the issues that we're focused, that we're focused on and support, and then they go out and, and kind of serve as our surrogates uh, or, you know, advocate for those policies in their, their local, state, and federal level. So I think UCS is very unique in that we have this very strong, highly technical, uh, sound, uh, scientific uh, background but we also are very active in community engagement, you know, encouraging citizens to support, you know, to, to advocate for issues that, you know, benefit the climate and benefit the uh, the world. Um, and I really think being an organization that has those two um, aspects and intertwined so, you know, so closely really makes it such an effective, you know, voice for, you know, advocating for, you know, sound policies that really help all people. I, I am kind of a, a technical geek at times. And when I read the report, I went through and I have pages of, of notes and questions. So I, I wanted to, to, to delve into this one. And I, I know you're, 
you're the expert here and I kind of want to just pick your brain on some things. The, the, the first chapter starts out talking about underserved communities and the role of autonomous vehicles in underserved communities. I thought maybe the best place to start would be just this concept of an auto-based system. Uh, pre, let's say pre-automated vehicles. How does the auto-based system create inequity? And maybe if we could start with that as like a foundation, then we can switch into automated vehicles and how they may or may not address some of those kind of foundational issues. Does that make sense as a question? Yeah, sure, it does. Um, so when we talk about the auto-based system, I mean, I think the really the best place to start at is just the, you know, one of the things we talk about is in terms of the, is the interstate highway system, right? We talk about its introduction in the 50s and 60s, you know, highways being built uh, that have connected cities and, and allow people to move freely and goods to move freely. Um, but look, but when you really look at the way that it was designed, the way that it was planned, um, there was, um, you know, intent really uh, from some of the planners to really build these through communities, local communities, communities of color without their voice, right? We, you know, these planners designed them, they mapped them, even they, they identified communities that they need to build these highways through in order for them to move forward, and they just did it. And what happened is that it really discouraged the, you know, really, um, I would say, disrupted the social cohesion and the, and the cohesiveness that, you know, many of these communities had. And even to, and even today, um, those uh, um, disparities and those impacts still exist. And of course, as the highways were built over the years, and of course, the cities grew, those highways had to be expanded to to accommodate more vehicles. Um, and then, what that of course entailed is that more vehicles, more pollution, and these communities that were, people that were living near these highways were exposed to much inc- increased risk for respiratory illnesses, noise. Um, issues, uh, of course, congestion and all its, uh, you know, environmental and uh, societal impacts. Um, and so just the deliberate, you know, um, uh, development of these highways and the negative impacts that still is this day really caused the system to be inequitable. Um, so that's one aspect. And you also look at the aspect of owning a car. You know, we talk about in the report the ownership of a car uh, can be very cost prohibitive for people uh, with limited means. Um, just the purchase of the car, the maintenance of the car, um, you know, compared to, you know, those who don't have a car is, is very, very cost prohibitive. Um, and so for many communities that have residents that can't afford a car, it really limits their um, their choices when it comes to, you know, moving from point A to point B. Um, they yeah. may be dependent on transit. And, you know, transit, unfortunately, in this, in this country has been historically underfunded and underinvested. I mean, you can see all the, you know, the, the backlogs and maintenance now are starting to uh, rear their ugly head in cities like D.C. and, and New York. Um, and so, you know, just historically, we've been a very car-centric country, but it's left many people behind and it's, it continues to affect many people in a negative way. So I think that you know that auto-centric um, you know environment that we've established in the United States just really has a number of you know places where inequity just rears its ugly head. It, it, it's always felt to me like it's very cruel to poor people. Like it's it, if you are if if you don't have the ante financially to play along, it can be really despotic. Am I? Are we on the same page mm-hmm. with that? I'm. I feel like we are. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, it's, it's 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 definitely you know use and use really strong words too. I think it's it's really be honest. Yeah. You know, if you look at just again the history of how our cities were planned, and the divisions that they caused, I mean, it's it's 
it's downright the fact of racism. Sure. I mean, that's what we actually quoted that, you know. And so the question is, as we, you know, have these new technologies that are coming in, these new modes of movement, um, how do we think about um, how we how we use those modes to, again, build access, to increase access? Um, how do we redesign, how do we think about how we redesign our cities to promote more equity, for more, more accessibility for people, no matter what income or what you look like? Um, and I do think there's definitely a push for that. Um, now, whether that's now pen- it's penetrated into the uh, the professional realm, um, is, that's another story. That, and, you know, there's still a long way to go with that. But I do think there's an awareness to say, look, you know, our transportation is inherently inequitable. It's, as, to, take, to quote your words, Cork, Chuck, despotic in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so how do we reverse that? How do we really focus on making the future transportation a more equitable and more accessible more affordable and just downright more available for everybody. Right. As much as much people as we can. Let, let's put let's put the first part of uh, the inequity, the the disruption of the neighborhood and the the pollution and the noise mm-hmm. and all that. Let, let's let I th- I feel like that's the harder one to deal with. Um, let's talk about automated vehicles in terms of of the problem of car ownership and the inequities of car ownership. Your your report talks about this a little bit and gets into this. I want to give you a chance to talk about how automated vehicles may or may not uh, actually help this problem of people who can't afford cars or can't afford to participate in the way that, uh, you know, we've designed the system to have them participate in. Uh, Go through some of those conclusions in, in your report, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. I mean, we've, in our report, we talked about, you know, of course, uh, it's potential that, you know, depending on how the Thomas vehicle is going to implement it, you know, if we could continue on the uh, single occupancy uh, paradigm that has, you know, defined car ownership for the last 50 years, um, it's not going to be available for everybody. I mean, usually with new technology, you see that it gets introduced, it gets introduced at a very high rate. The people with uh, the money can afford the cars, and then, um, you know, it, it trickles down. But, you know, if you're looking for people who, if people are looking for option solutions now, especially in those areas. So uh, we talk a lot about the potential of, um, you know, one, um, looking at, uh, you know, AVs implementing in uh, into a mobility as a service. So instead of having a car, people owning a car, they may, you know, call a service that's owned by a ride company like an Uber or Lyft or another outfit, or where they can, um, you know, pay for specific rides from point A to point B. And in the long run, you know, instead of having to do, having to have those you know, fixed cost, you know, they're able to, you know, just deal with the the, the trip and pay for that. So that's, you know, one thing we, we addressed in the report in a way. Or of course, we talk about, um, you know, transit-dependent riders and you know, encouraging the investment in public transit in addition to the induction of autonomous vehicles. So the introduction of AVs could, you know, build those first mile, last mile connections to help people get uh, more connected uh, with transit. So, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, um, discussion with the uh, transit agencies about, you know, of course, using ride share to, to connect that first mile, last mile or other means. Maybe that's uh, a way where uh, AVs can really benefit, you know, public transit and, of course, then provide uh, a better transportation experience for um, transit-dependent and transit-choice riders. So, we, we, you know, we talk a little about, we talk about the investment of transit being very important in our report. And then we also talk about, you know, pooled rides. So, um, again, let's go back to the, you know, if let's say we have a mobility as a service um, environment when AVs come in, you know, it's 
instead of having to pay for a single passenger ride, um, which of course is going to have uh, significant, you know, negative impacts on congestion and therefore air pollution, if you encouraged, uh, you know, multi multiple rides, multiple passengers in a ride, whether two or three, um, of course that's going to decrease the total amount of miles travel, cumulative miles travel, but also, you know, if you're paying for a certain um, cost to get in that ride, you know, of course, more passengers, you know, very similar to like the lift lines and Uber pools, it cuts your cost down. Um, so it may, it could encourage, you know, more forward rides when you're able to ride with other people. Um, so, you know, that's, a, you know, one of the conclusions that we really push is how do we, you know, encourage pulling and, you know, doing that through, you know, either financial incentives or financial pressures. Um, or, you know, de- dedicating specific lanes for, you know, HOV 3 or 4, which we, we kind of see now in a number of cities. Um, so I think if we can really focus on, you know, reducing that cost um, through pooling and, of course, investing in transit for people who are dependent on that, um, I think you're really going to see, you know, some potential, you know, uh, benefits um, with the introduction of autonomous vehicles as long as we really focus on implementing them in, you know, improving gaps in, you know, in the city. I mentioned to you before we turned on the recorder that I'm a, I'm a little bit of a skeptic. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a skeptic. A lot of times when I hear people talk about automated vehicles and I'm not putting this on you, I, I just think like the general hype around it is like, this is, this is the key to, you know, name your problem. Uh, it's going to solve inequity. It's going to solve, uh, you know, discrimination. It's going to provide jobs. It's going to, you know, heal the environment. It's going to solve Mideast peace, cure cancer, you know, the whole like litany of things. I, 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 I kind of feel like there's a little bit of hype around it more than the substance. Your report gets into the substance and I'm, I, I, I want to kind of push you on something cause I'd, I'd like to hear how you respond to this. In the answer you just gave, you you mentioned you brought up Uber and Lyft a couple times, and you also mm-hmm. you also talked about transit. And in the report, uh, the idea of improving transit and getting people to to share rides and and pool uh, rides mm-hmm. together it, mm-hmm. is a very important strategy of making this work. Here's my question, and it, it, you could push back if this isn't fair, but. Why do we need automated vehicles to do those things? Those things seem like things that could happen in current technology. And I guess if you agree with that, why would it change with eliminating the driver, I guess is my central question. So I'll, that that was a long-winded way of, of asking you a complex question. I'll let you kind of respond to those thoughts a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and uh, again, this is more my personal opinion because I I will say I don't want to put you know UCS in a position, but I will say this: I do think that um, the question is how do we fill in the gaps? How do we so how do we improve transit access? Yeah. You know, we're seeing in many cities that ridership is dropping. I mean, we see it in D.C. We we see you know we D.C. has significant. Uh, ridership drop in Metro for the last five years, you know, and then New York, I think, is going to experience the same thing when they start, you know, doing their, you know, massive maintenance, you know, over the next few years. And so the question is, how can we get, how how do we, how can we get people who want to take transit better access to it? And then secondly, how do we make transit more accessible and more affordable and more enticing for people who currently aren't users of the system? Um, you know, if Autonomous, the question is, you know, if autonomous vehicles could fill in those gaps that maybe, you know, 
uh, a typical large bus wasn't able to do so by shuttling people to the bus stops, shuttling people to the train stations as part of a, of um, a network that's you know overseen by a transit agency. You know um, that I think that could prove a benefit. You know, especially if the again if the agency oversees it, the uh, pricing structure and the cost structure um, and how you pay for it is all within one system, uh, and it makes it easier for the consumers. I think that could uh, be a benefit um, and really help. Um, really, again, it's all about kind of just right sizing that first mile, last mile. I mean, do you, you take having 46 passenger buses going through small neighborhoods and taking people to other stops? You know, especially with the small neighborhood roads, is very difficult. Right now, do you uh, downsize that to smaller cars, to smaller vehicles, whether it's 12 to 15? Uh, you know, I, you know, uh, passenger vans taking people from neighborhoods into 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 those neighborhoods and taking people out to the more uh, main arterial streets. Um, that's that could be an option, and if it's um, you know depending on the cost of being able to do that, you know does minimize you know taking the labor out, you know make it more cost effective. No, I'm not saying that. I'm against you know uh, late, you know I'm get I'm for like you know cutting jobs or you know eliminating jobs. Not even that's not even the case. But I guess thinking about how do you make the system um, transportation system again more accessible to an increased number of people and. Um, how do you do that in a cost-effective and efficient uh, sort of way? So I guess to answer your question, I think there are certain places that may be autonomous vehicles, especially if you take into account the cost um, impacts may several. But I also think that if we really step back and look at, you know, transit as a whole, especially public transit and the underinvestment that, you know, we've historically seen in this country, you know, uh, it would just be ideally – you know, we would expand transit. We would expand, um, you know, light rail or bus routes, make them have, you know, uh, you know less headways. So, you know, every five or seven, every 15 or 20 minutes, you know, during peak hours and 45 minutes to an hour during, you know, off-peak hours like some cities do, you would have much more frequent service um, that would take, again, you know, make it easier for people to get to where they need to go. And if frequent enough, you know, you don't even have to own a car. Um, you know, so I guess, yeah, to me, I think, you know, AVs could play a role. Um, do I think they are the ultimate arbiter? No, I don't think so. I think there's definitely other things we can do to really make transportation, you know, more equitable. And AVs may not be the the panacea to that. So I, I want to get into those things because it felt like when I read the report, mm-hmm. it, it was an automated vehicle report, and, and you kept coming back to that, and, and and that was like the central focus. But it was hard for me not to see. Especially like I'm on page seven where you've got here's the baseline in 2017 and here's the 2040 baseline in terms of like jobs accessible. And and then you've got these, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a a little bit of bump. Um, But then, you know, you say, well, if we have automated vehicles, there's a few more jobs. But then if we do carpooling and we do transit all of a sudden the whole paradigm changes and and the number of jobs that are accessible go up the number of uh, congested miles goes down uh the you know basically like every metric goes up and i i just wonder how much of this is an automated vehicle conversation and how much of this is a conversation about uh you know getting people to essentially carpool and and improving our transit system it's much more, I would say, the latter. It's really about um, changing the way we um, occupy our cars and changing the way we move around. I mean, automated vehicles could, you know, if you, if you look at, 
you know, AVs impact in terms of reducing, you know, eliminating the cost of driving. Yeah. Um, the, you know, people may be more willing to say, well, if I don't have to drive far, uh, or I don't have to, or I don't, or, or, the, or I don't have to drive at all. Yeah. I may be able to get, you know, uh, maybe more willing to, to, uh, get, you know, to get to, you know, in that car and go where I need to go, especially if, if I don't have to drive. But I think the conversation is really all about, um, you know, getting people to uh, embrace carpooling again. You know, that was something that we used to do in the 80s, uh, and then and the, that's, you know, decreased significantly over the last 35 years. That's getting people to, you know, see, uh, especially in urban areas, a robust power, a robust public transit system, um, where it's, you know, a combination of light rail, um, traditional bus routes, bus rapid transit, um, and even maybe incorporating some of the other new modes, such as e-scooters and e-bikes, um, Making all those, um, you know, investing in all those systems as well. So I will say that I think it's more of the latter question in terms of like, you know, we really encourage, um, uh, you know, multi-passenger rides and really encourage transit investments. That's where we're really trying to push. So it's not so much an AV question. Um, we just, you know, kind yeah. of look at AVs, but it's more around the lines of, you know, if we to reduce, the, you know, the number of cars on the road and to increase drive accessibility, you, you need less cars because then they can get to where they need to go quickly, more quickly. And of course, you need to invest in transit because there's only a certain amount of capacity of, of cars that you can have on a road before you again, you know, reach, you know, you know, ridiculous levels of congestion. So I think the latter right. really is what we're trying to focus on. I, I have to say. And, and again, I invite you to push back on this because I, 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 I want to be wrong. There, there was a part of me that was a little depressed uh, when I read this because, of course, you're focusing on Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And part of this mm-hmm. talked about, you know, the need to make some significant transit improvements to make uh, mm-hmm. this, you know, more equitable, uh, you know, better functioning uh, system come about. And I'm sitting here going. Yeah. What's the best transit system in in the United States today? And I think it's Washington D.C. I mean, I, I maybe you could make a case that another city has a comparable one. I don't know, New York maybe. Um, but to me, Washington D.C. is like the epicenter of of good transit in this country. Uh, you know what what, mm-hmm. what happens in the you know the Cincinnati's and the St. Louis's and the you know the 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 Los Angeles uh, of the world who are so far from the great transit system you have there. Um, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I wonder how applicable some of these, uh, some of these ideas are, uh, it, it, you know, to those kind of places. Um, I think there's definitely applicability now, you know, in, in these in those smaller metro areas, you know, their primary, mode of uh, public transit are buses, right? right? Yeah, and, sure. you know, uh, they're very, yeah, and many cities have very extensive bus systems that, you know, have, unfortunately, very high headways, you know, and so, and as part of the investment in transit, I mean, we don't focus just on light rail. I mean, D.C.'s light rail system, yeah, it's very good, um, despite its, you know, current issues and what's going through now, but it definitely has a very extensive light rail, so does New York and L.A., I think, does as well. But I think if you can really focus on, you know, uh, maximize, you know, really improving the efficiency and the and the frequency of the bus system. Um, in some of these, you know, mid-sized cities like Cincinnati and St. Louis and Nashville, um, to name a few, um, you can, um, you know, really make some headway, right? Right, um, right. Where does that bus rapid transit? Maybe have dedicated lanes, you know, to have buses, you know, go through and, and you know, on the main arterials in these cities. 
um, instead of having to deal with traffic, um, you know, um, or, you know, making the routes more efficient. So, you know, again, the headways, you know, are reduced and um, they don't go to more, they pick up people in more, loca- in more locations. Um, so I think you, you, as long as you incorporate, you know, the, the, the investments, you know, using the, the, your, your, the travel demand model uh, of your city, uh, I think you can really apply some of the work, the work that we've done in this report and, you know, at least get see some trends and see some, you know, behaviors that, you know, could um, inform, you know, how you invest in, you know, transit and other alternative modes over the next, you know, 25, 30 years in your city. So I think there's definitely applicability in these cities. It's just a matter of, you know, tailoring it specifically to your model and tailoring specifically to your um, your state of transit in that city. Right. There feel... Uh, maybe I'll save this till later. I don't know. I, I'll ask this now, and 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 you can, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll, I'll ask it like this. It it seems to me like it, when I go back and I I read the conversations that were going on in the in the 30s and 40s about the highway system, uh, a, a lot of it was mm-hmm. about the you know the hype, the new technology, and look at what it can do, and look at what it can create, and 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 we're gonna you know basically re-envision this whole new America and it's going to empower people to make great decisions and it's going to lower the cost of transportation. And it, it did all those things in many ways, but it also did it as you pointed out in the beginning, you know, on the backs of ripping some, some, you know, cohesive neighborhoods apart. And, you know, I think disenfranchising a, a lot of people uh, and certainly, you know, mm-hmm. going forward from that kind of change in time to today, it's hard to argue that that was a net positive, particularly in those core neighborhoods. I feel like, mm-hmm. and, and I, I, I think, again, I hope I'm wrong on this, but it, it feels like a lot of the hype around automated vehicles is the same thing. Like we'll be able to lower the cost of the first and last mile. We'll be able to make things cheaper. I'll be able to live in my suburban home and commute in congestion free. And won't that be great? You brought up the, the, the damage that the highway system did on the social cohesion of neighborhoods and the increased pollution mm-hmm. and all. How do you think automated mm-hmm. vehicles can start to address some of those lingering issues, some of those kind of long-term structural things that, that still persist in our neighborhood today as a result of these decisions mm-hmm. we made in the, in the early automobile era? Right, right. Um, that's a very good question. Uh, I think, you know, for me personally, I think you, know, you have to really focus on where are these vehicles going to be um, introduced. I mean, do you allow the market to kind of take you know, uh, control, which to me, by doing that, is going to exacerbate the problems I already have. You know, you're going to see people living further away and they're going to be willing to commute for three, four hours and you know, work and all that. Um, you know, and the challenge with that is, you know, if you know, when it to, so I'll, I'll, let me step back. I guess for me to look at when you look when you look at transportation, you know, and you ask someone what is their experience, what what experience do they want in transportation? They always want the most comfortable. They want the most efficient. They want the most cost friendly. They want the most comfortable. You know, you know, experience that's going to be easy for them, and right. you know, when and when you and when but when you accumulate that if you ask millions of people who want a comfortable experience that actually you know is that is that question where 500,000 million people want comfortable experiences it makes everybody's worse experiences worse because we all want to live further away and you know have you know you know car you know driver free commutes and just makes things worse so um 
you know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, Thomas Vehicles, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think it's if you don't implement them in the right way, if you don't implement them to really focus, to me, on you know, inner city develop, inner city movement, you know, to connect um, residents to transit agency, transit, you know, um, stops. You know, I think that's that. There's a benefit there, but I think if you allow it to increase, you know, to for people outside of city and who live in the suburbs to access them, it's going to just increase sprawl. Um, so, you know, I think that is a deeper question on how we design our cities. You know, do we, you know, again, encourage public transit, not only in the city, but also in the suburbs. So people have talked about suburb to suburb transit. You know, if I want to live in Tyson's Corner, I want to get to Bethesda, you know, there's not a really good way to do that, uh, right now. Um, but really increasing those interconnections between the suburbs and people being able to move from, um, you know, um, one job center to another job center, you know, I think that's something that we can really, you know, focus on. Um, whether AVs really help with that or not, um, that's a, a that's a question that, and I think, you know, is up in the air. Um, I do think personally, those, you know, ways of getting around in a metro area without the use of a car is what should be the first focus. Um, adding more cars in the road, you know may solve some issues, but to be honest, I don't think it's going to. It's going to make it really focus on – it's going to make traffic worse. It's going to make congestion worse um, just because people are going to drive them and live further away. So really, you know, really focusing on transit, really focusing on let's invest in, you know, alternative ways of moving around. Let's invest in, you know, buses. Let's invest in um, active transportation like walking and scooters and building more, you know, inclusive communities that are close together. Those are the – those are actually going to – are going to make transportation and, you know, uh, the city in general, uh, a much better living experience for people. Uh, so moving away from cars, focusing on alternative modes and moving around. Um, that's my, I think that's my opinion in that. So, you know, I'm definitely, like I said, skeptical about, you know, do more cars on the road help provide access, you know, maybe for, of course, definitely for senior citizens, disability communities, uh, people who are impaired and can't, and young people, um, and there may be some benefits there. Um, but you know, right, right, you look sure, at it, sure. You can look at a system from an entire standpoint. You know, you want to provide alternative modes that are not going to put more stress on the roads than we already have. Um, and so I think that's really where we need to focus on. Well, one of the policy recommendations in this report was to focus on compact development patterns. I, I, I feel like mm-hmm. I feel like that's kind of what we've been dancing around a little bit here. Um, maybe take a moment and and elaborate on that a little bit. How 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 central and key is that to kind of dealing with some of these long term, uh, you know, inequity issues that you point out very clearly in the report? Yeah, I, I think that when you talk about comp, you know comp, you know developing more compact cities and more um, you know we just say transfer with development. You know, I think you know having amenities within you know short distances you know is um, especially when they're accessible by me- modes other than a car, um, is a it could be a potential benefit, you know, and, and I think it really could help, you know, promote community, promote, um, uh, you know, a sense of cohesion, kind of like how the communities were um, before the highways built to them. Now the question is, how do we, you know, how do we develop those? The, that how do we focus on the development? You know, right now, um, you know, the Catch twenty two of transit or development 
is that typically when people see, you know, uh, TOD coming into their cities, especially if those who are long-time residents, they automatically see, you know, uh, potential for displacement. You know, housing costs go up, transportation costs go up, everything goes up, and then they get pushed right. out. And, I mean, that's the age-old question of gentrification that, you know, has started to, you know, I mean, it's been around for a while, and now it's starting to, you know, people start to push back, especially in places like D.C. Um, and so I think that, you know, but I do think that if, if we really want to encourage that inclusive development and encourage, you know, people of different backgrounds to to live close together and to, and to you know, um, work and live with each other, you know, it's not gonna it's not gonna be up to the market. We have to really focus on regulatory processes and regulatory ideas to say, okay, let's focus on building more affordable housing here and put money toward it. Let's focus on really implementing better transit and put money money toward it. I mean, really, it has to be a a a, a search within our, our country about like how do we build our cities moving into the future? Um, do we make them bigger and wider and more sprawl and you know deal with all those issues that come with that? Or do we really try to build social cohesiveness um, within these compact cities? Um, that's the decision that you know we need to make as a society. Um, you know, history, history has said that that's not been the case. Um, but you know, we can always have, we always have an opportunity to uh, change the direction moving forward. Sure, I've I felt for a long time that uh, essentially. Automated vehicles, to me, like the greatest uh, benefit that they could have would be if we actually charged the cost of driving. In other words, if you want to live 40 miles out and have that long commute and, you know, because of that, we have to widen out highways, you know, close to the the city center at huge cost, both dollar cost and, yeah. and social cost. There's there's all these things that go into the, the cost of of that lifestyle that if we actually charge people mm -hmm. the amount per mile, that that would be one way to, in, in a sense, actually create a real market where you would have supply balance with demand. If you paid the full price, uh, you know, you could make an informed decision. You know, I, a, a lot of times I will say, you know, I love lobster and I would eat lobster every day, but, but it's really expensive. So I eat a lot of hamburger, right? <laughs> you know, if, if the suburban mm -hmm. house, if you actually had to pay for the transportation, um, you know, you, you, you might find that, that townhome closer to town, uh, a little bit, you know, a little bit more to your liking. Yeah. The opposite, the opposite side of that though, is if we actually charge people how much it costs for transportation, the people who are already priced out of the system are going to struggle mm -hmm. even more. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you mm -hmm. see both sides of that conversation? And I guess, do you have an opinion on that one way or the other? Yeah, uh, I do. I mean, that's a tough question. Yeah. Um, because that's something that we've talked about, like, okay, yeah. Um, hmm. I think for, I think the best way to answer that is, you know, transparency is always important. Um, you know, do we, depending on, you know, we need to be able to explain to people, anybody, you know, what is the real cost of transportation? What is the real cost of you driving, you know, uh, 50 miles in one way, one out and just, and have people make the decision on their own. Right. Um, and then when it comes to people who, because they can't live in the city, you know, they have to be forced to move out. Um, further and further and further away, you know, do we 
do we price that in as well? Do we like provide subsidies for them to 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 uh, make those trips? Um, do we also encourage uh, more you know development you know within the suburbs so people can actually don't have to drive that that far to get to where they you know get to jobs and or to you know to other amenities you know so you know it, we don't want to you know we want to really be transparent about what it really costs to you know to drive and because that's not that's not being told right um the deal you know state dots are you know kind of putting in their money and they're making the roads and they're, but they're not really talking about you know they take me they take taxpayer dollars to to build the roads but we always all know the gas taxes is, is, is you know it's not not sufficient and a lot of cities are struggling with you know a lot, a lot of states are struggling with funding um so transparency is very important and then you know um really focusing on one for the residents who are out in in the, in, the, in the suburbs like let's build opportunities for them and then also let's uh say for people who want to stay in the city let's find you know opportunities to you know um revitalize their communities and have them be an integral part in you know uh re- redeveloping that social cohesion and having the cities be willing partners in that um i mean it really is taking it really is for people taking a altruistic and uh you know concerned stance about you know willing to 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 support uh, people who to means, you know, people who have been marginalized. Um, it's going to take a decision uh, for people, for uh, the leadership to do that. And I think also the best way to, to have that is to have people who understand uh, those inequities and those inequalities to be in the places of decision making, so they can make, so you know, they can influence, you know, where money is spent, where uh, project, what projects are developed. Um, you need to have people in, in that entire ecosystem, both in the community and the leadership level, uh, to make this happen. So, you know, I think um, when you look at you know the pricing. Um, you know, do we lessen? Do we in, make it tr- the cost transparent so people know? Okay, this is what's actually going to cost for me to drive 50 miles, and then having you know uh, people who make the decision be able to say, okay, I'm going to take that cost, and people who can't say, okay, well, let's help to build more inclusive um, development near where they are now, um, so they don't have to uh, drive and potentially incur that cost. Right. Did you, uh, you live in D.C. now? Uh, I actually live in Alexandria, but I work in D.C. And, oh, okay, okay. I, can, if you don't mind me asking, where did you grow mm-hmm. up at? Where, where are you from? Uh, I grew up in East Tennessee in a city called Kingsport. It's about an hour northeast of Knoxville. Sure. Around, okay. Around I, I know that part of the world. Oh, okay, very cool. I, I, just, <laughs> I just wonder if uh, D.C. is... is uh, is one of these perplex, you know, perplexing places to me because it doesn't. Um, it's it's so different economically than other regions. Part of that is the you know the influence of the federal government and and obviously you know all the stuff that goes along with that. Um, but it also just has you know an an interesting kind of layout and dynamic. And I, I, I it was it was fascinating to me to read this article uh, or this report on autonomous vehicles and think about it in terms of kind of a unique place. I, maybe I want to ask you this. I, I, if you were to think of in terms of these, these neighborhoods that have been left behind and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, in the DC area there, there are a number of underserved communities, I think is what you refer to them in the report. Yeah. Equity facilities, we identify them. Yeah. Exactly. When Mm -hmm. we're deploying automated vehicles in the future, what's the, what's the best case scenario of how this helps and benefits those neighborhoods. 
And and I'd like you also to say what you maybe think is the worst case scenario. Like what 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 would if if we screwed this up, what would that look like too? I, I I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on both of those. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think it's always going to start. You know, we just take out the bad first. Um, you know, um, the number one concern when it comes to ABs is their potential to siphoning off uh, choice riders from transit people who invest into the system and once that happens you see your ridership numbers drop um for many you know trans systems you know a lot of their um you know funds come from you know op, you know from fair for fares um dc is heavily dependent on fares for example um compared to other cities i mean they just recently got some dedicated funding from the three jurisdictions but they're still very heavily uh, focused on funding so on, on um op, affairs so if we start seeing you know decreased ridership uh, because transit is not the way people want to move around, then it's going to be higher cost, and then people are going to even move even more away from it. Um, and so that's definitely a major concern. Um, you talk about uh, the ownership and operating of cars, because you know when you take when uh, if automated cars get into the road and and people start taking that, especially if people can afford it, then you know it again increase the cost of moving, and then people have to spend much more of their uh, funds, especially in low-income communities. Um, all moving around, and then we got to look at it from an environmental stamp, but the environmental standpoint as well. Um, you know, if you know a lot of car companies have said, okay, you know, let's uh, if we want to implement AVs, we want to put, make them electric, you know, which is something that we push to minimize the global warming and uh, uh, local air pollution impacts. But if somehow they backtrack and move the needle and, and say, well, we'll use you know ultra low emission or hybrid vehicles, which you know still have emissions. I mean that increased driving that you're going to see from AVs, you know, is going to, is going to impact those communities even, you know, uh, even more so in a negative way. Um, and then job access. Um, if we don't really focus on, you know, incorporating um, opportunities to get access to jobs, you know, as I mentioned in the mentioned in the report, we have, you know, a spatial dislocation of where the jobs are and where the people that most need them are going to be. That's going to make that you know, dislocation even worse. So uh, AVs left. You know, that's what we think is the worst case, you know, specifically the transit, you know, um, uh, cannibalism. Right. Uh, right. And the, and the, uh, and the uh, environmental, um, you know, impacts of increased driving and therefore increased pollution should the cars not be EV. And, of course, for the best case scenario, we do incur- we have these cars electric. You know, we have, uh, you know, um, people being able to use them. Um, at, a, at, a, at an affordable cost because they're not already owning the car. They're either sharing um, with other people or they're sharing by themselves, depending on, you know, how comfortable they are. Um, you know, we really give, if should uh, people who are, you know, disabled or senior citizens um, who can't drive, you know, you know, the Thomas vehicles could help, would help to promote uh, more opportunities for them. Um, and then when, again, back to the transit, if we put these cars in a way that increases access to transit, uh, for people who may have, you know, or currently have really, have to wait really long just to get a bus or, you know, to get on a train, if we can get people connected to those, uh, transit, you know, hubs, you know, via, uh, either small AB, small times vehicles with 12, 15 passengers that are freaking and moving around, um, then I think it's going to be really, you know, truly helpful. So, you know, I definitely look at the best case scenario being the encouragement of, you know, uh, ABs to support transit, the electrification of vehicles, and then uh, lastly, I want, want, want to point out that, um, you know, if ABs, 
you know, with ABs, we may not have to park, right? You know, parking garages may not be needed. So can we repurpose that space for other modes, um, parks, you know, bike lanes, sidewalks, green spaces? Um, and those green spaces are, are, you know, really growing a lot in cities, um, especially as people as cities dismantle highways. Um, you know, we can we can really promote this, you know, increased access and, and, and more and an increased, uh, you know, um, you know, environment for people. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, this new technology again, you know, I think with any technology, it's really about how you implement it and how you, you know, introduce it um, and being cognizant of the potential impacts that could be negative, which I think we're starting to see a lot more discussion of now. Um, I think it's going to, you know, ensure that the people who are making the decisions when it comes to, okay, where are these cars going, where are these cars going to be introduced, you know, how we're going to, you know, adjust our roads, uh, are we going to repurpose parking for green spaces, for example. I think you're going to have decision makers be really cognizant of those, you know, potential negative impacts and, and be much more proactive and, and have more foresight in really, you know, implementing vehicles and therefore, um, you know, just um, transportation as a whole in a more equitable and, and uh, accessible way. As a last question, mm-hmm. I'd like you to uh, take yourself out of D.C. for a sec and, and the D.C. area. Um, mm-hmm. and, and in your mind, think of, uh, you know, wh- where you grew up, maybe a, a Chattanooga area or Nashville or a Memphis or, or maybe even, you know, I, I live a couple hours north of Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, you know, a, a Midwestern city like that or even go further west. Um if you are giving advice to local leaders, local activists, people who are, um, you know, working in this space and, and want to make their cities function better, want to make them more equitable, want to make them uh, better places to live. What are you telling them to do to get ready for automated vehicles? Uh, if automated vehicles are inevitable and they're coming, which I think you assert that in the report and, and I don't agree with, I, I mean, I do agree with that. I think, that's, I think that that is true. I think we are going to have some form of automation. What, what should people be doing in their communities to get ready for this? Mm-hmm. If we want them to be successful. Right. The number one thing I would I say um, is that as a community member, you need to understand the decision-making the, the, the decision powers. Like who are the people that are going to... Uh, you know, really control um, within the city, within the cities, where these cars are going to be utilized and how they're going to how they're going to be utilized. And so, you know, I talk a lot about you know being involved in you know pl- you know your local metropolitan planning organization committees. I talk about um, having people you know go to the meetings and, and advocate for certain uh, policies that will that will allow these vehicles to be implemented in a equitable way. So, does that mean you know we want these uh, cars to be at a reasonable cost, so you know people in the in in senior citizen or shelter can use them if possible. We want, or for example, we want to make sure that they are working with the transit agencies, um, you know, to you know implement those first mile, last mile connections. You know, if you if you're not in the rooms making the decisions, you know, people are going to make them for you. Um, and so I think as a you know, if I was talking with them, that's the one thing I would say. Um, you know, the, or the first definitely the top thing I would say is like get in the places where the people are talking about these. Is that the Office of Planning? Is that the the MPO? Is that the DOT um, working group on AVs? You know, all these people are you know developing pilots and and, and trying to figure out how these cars are going to implement be implemented and have decision making power. Any people who are focused on equity, who are focused on 
um, access. We're focused on on job growth and for the communities to be in those rooms so they can you know have influence. You know, I've tried to do that with some of the volunteer work that I've done with the uh, the Metropolitan Planning Organization here in, in the D.C. area, the, the Transportation Planning Board. Um, so I think, you know, being in those rooms and people say, okay, you know, this, this guy knows he was really focused on equity and accessibility and affordability and, you know, making sure people understand that. And that's definitely one thing I would uh, think about um, and encourage people to do in, in these communities. Um, what else would think? Yeah, I think you know, yeah, just being in, in having a voice, you know, you know, right. like I said, his history has shown that when people don't have a voice, um, they get left out, and therefore, you know, the negative impacts you know hit them. Um, I mentioned with the interstate highway system is a good example. Um, being in those rooms, understanding the technology, understanding how planning works, understanding how uh, you know new technology in cities deploy, you know, via the, you know with the smart city, you know. Um, paradigm we have going on, I think can make a really big difference. I think it really could, um, especially if you if you have like information from like organizations like the Unconcerned Scientists that can back up claims about you know you know AB deployment and what it can do well and what it can make things worse and how it can make things worse. Um, you know having you know information that you can talk that you can share with your local representatives and the decision makers I think really makes a big difference. Right. I, I want to just thank you one more time, uh, not only for the work that you're doing, but for the work that the uh, the Union of Concerned Scientists is doing. It's it's very impressive, and thank you for taking the time to be here. You you don't ever make it to Minnesota, do you? Uh, one day I would like to, but I've, I have I don't do often. I've been once though. I was up there for a conference in the summer of seventeen, actually at the UCS was doing in St. Paul. But I've once once a day I do want to visit. I would want to visit a the Minneapolis area more. Um, it seems like okay. a lot of things are happening there. Um, I know with, uh, you know, one, one of our, um, actually one of our, um, um, stakeholders, one of our, say like our, we had like a big, a, a group of, um, experts that looked at a report and one of the, one of the people she works on like the M I 94, um, you know, reimagining project for the Minnesota DOT. So we, we have a lot of right, right. interest in Minnesota up there. So yeah, I don't make it a lot. I do want to go more. Um, someday I will come visit the area. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, if you make it, let me know. Cause I'll, I'll, I'll bring you up here and you can, you can see the lakes and the woods and, uh, enjoy small town life a little bit too. Yeah. I think, you know, small town life, I would love to experience. Um, you know, I said, I've, I've you know, Kingsport, where I live, is about 50,000 people. Where I grew up, is about 50,000 people. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's not so much like a small town, but it's not, it's not a major urban city. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think, um, you know, looking at, you know, one of the things that I, I guess kind of um, moving off the subject a little bit of AVs, you know, I've always thought about transportation. You know, we look at transportation very much from the urban setting in these major cities. But, you know, what are the needs for, you know, small cities or rural areas? You know, I get, I've got a lot of questions about Thomas vehicles and how it's going to affect people who live in, you know, you know, rural, rural cities and rural areas in the Midwest and, you know, other places in the country. And, and I don't think even I have a great answer for that. I don't I mean, think anyone knows. No, that's the yeah, crazy thing. Knows. No. Yeah, you know. It's, and that's, you know, that's a question that we have to address. And is it that, uh, ABs, that the, what's, 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 what is the real need for people in these areas when it comes to moving or movement, you know? Right. They're, where, they go, where, where, where they start and where they're going to is much, their locations are much different than what mine is being in D.C. or somebody else is living in a New York or a, a Chicago. 
but they're those people aren't as they're they're no they're no less important than you know the urban you know people living in the urban cities as well. So let's make sure that um, you know, especially if you're an NPO that has rural areas in your jurisdiction, you have to address those needs as well. Um, and you know, see what those needs are for the people, and and you know, provide opportunities for them. I wonder if you've run into this because I, you know, part of the part of the AV conversation here, my place is about half of your. We're about twenty five thousand right here. Um, okay. You know, part of it is I think the the hype, right? Like the the front row people going. You know, uh, I won't have to drive myself now. I can watch the news on the way in, or you know watch the ball game on the way home or whatever it is. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I find that kind of silly. There's another, there's another part of it though, that is I drive truck for a living and this is my job and I don't know what I'm going to do if, uh, if my job goes away in five years and those jobs are actually some of the better paying jobs for, for people without mm-hmm. college degrees. I, I, I was going to ask you and I, we kind of ran out of time, but maybe I can just throw this out. It, it does seem like in a lot of struggling neighborhoods, one of the things that people can do, and you see a lot of immigrant communities embrace the, the taxi driver um, because it's a, it's a way to get started. Uh, it's a way to, you know, particularly before Uber and Lyft, I think even, um, you know, it was a way to, get, to kind of get started and maybe build something over time control your own hours you know if the kids got a problem you can go help them out and then you can get back on and work an evening shift or something um mm-hmm. are, are, do we do do we do something damaging when when that goes away and i'm i'm not defending like the buggy whip maker like i realize progress you know sometimes destroys jobs um but i wonder if we've thought through that aspect of it or if you have any thoughts on that I have. I mean, we, we had one of the things that we did as part of the research is we actually had a convening where we brought in a number of different stakeholders um, to discuss issues such as labor impacts. And we've had a number, a number of groups that, re- that, you know, focus on that represent people who, whose jobs are at risk with automation. Um, and the question in the AV space is, you know, how if this technology, if and when this technology comes and it starts to impact people's jobs, like how do we, you know, how do we move them to a place or, or transfer them to a place that they can still have value in their work? I don't think that right. question has been answered. Um, yeah. I do think that it's not been answered because there's not a really good answer to it. You know, I mean, right. like you said, people who are truck drivers, who are taxi drivers, you know, um, you know, they spend, you know, thousands to millions of dollars getting their medallions and then ha- and have to, you know, follow these strict regulations to operate a driver, operate a, operate a, you know, a cab. And now they've been undercut by, you know, rideshare companies or, you know, truck drivers, you know, who, you know, spend you know, 12, 14 hours a day driving across the, you know, the, the country. And then, you know, um, all of a sudden, you know, automated, automated truck driving comes in a way, you know, that's a concern. Um, right. You know, so those are questions that I think need to be answered. Um, I don't think there's any good answers to that yet. Um, But, you know, within the truck industry, um, you know, uh, one of the the AB companies are really pushing for, uh, you know, the truck industry to embrace, you know, automated trucking because, you know, there's a a chronic shortage of drivers uh, within the truck industry. Um, I don't think Amazon, you know, there was a report last year about how, you know, the, the industry is getting older and, you know, younger drivers are not, 
young people are not going to the driving profession because it is very demanding. Um, and then you're seeing prices of goods increase because, you know, it takes more, you have to pay more people to ship. So that's maybe something to think about. And then with the, the cab drivers, you know, um, a lot of a lot of these drivers, you know, a lot of these cab companies, they didn't, they weren't prepared for the, for the uh, disruption in ride share, and now they're adapting um, and, you know, starting to implement uh, similar procedures um, that make them on par with ride share. But, of course, you have that extra um, uh, verification, um, you know. And so I also think that, you know, and I think also the strike that happened yesterday, I think really, you know, for Uber and Lyft when Uber, um, you know, went public, I think really right. made people aware, like, okay, you know, do do are these drivers independent contractors? Are they employees? You know, do you invest in? Do you support companies um, that potentially, you know, wouldn't only work if you know the drivers are eliminated? I mean, I think it's a question that each of us has to answer. Um, you know, and, and where our moral centers are, you know, helps us to you know determine what those uh, how we answer those questions. Um, but yeah, I mean, to be honest, I don't know if people really talked about. You know, what do we do with, you know, these displaced jobs? You know, how do we, how do you do it in the past when automation disrupted other industries? You know, some, some, there have been some success stories, but a lot of failures, you know, in terms of really replacing people, moving people to new opportunities. Um, we have to, we're going to have to face the same questions with the uh, automation of, of, of uh, the, of automobile, of cars and trucks, you know. Um, and, right. you know, I think a lot of people are very concerned um, about that. I appreciate you taking the time. I, I, I feel, um, I feel like, you know, after chatting with you for an hour, like you and I are struggling with a lot of the same, you know, maybe existential unanswerable questions. And I guess if anything mm-hmm. gives me a little bit of, uh, gives me a little bit of hope, it's that someone, you know, of your stature is actually struggling with the same things that I am. So thank you for that. For that. Yep. There, are, <laughs> there are a lot of people who are similar. They're struggling with the same things and, you know, people who, like I said, we take a, you know, we try to take a very balanced approach to it. But, you know, people who are like, look, this is, the AVs are pointless and this is the worst thing in the world and it's going to make, yeah. you know, just all our, you know, our tri-trim system horrible. And that's, there's a lot of valid points to that. You know, some people are like, well, you know, on the other side, you know, if I'm in a community that I can't drive and, you know, they're going to help me to get to where I need to go, um, I want it. I want an AV, you know. Um, and so, yeah, there's people on both sides. But, again, it's really all about, you know, um, if as a society, you know, how do we, you know, how do we make our transportation system, you know, accessible to everybody, but also how do we, you know, provide, you know, value of life for, you know, people who use it as well. And, you know, until we really sit down and, um, come to grips together with what those questions, how those questions should be answered, you know, we're going to be having these same concerns. That is Dr. Richard Ziki. He is one of the authors or co-author of a report from the Union of Concerned Scientists called Where Are Self-Driving Cars Taking Us? We'll uh, for sure link to that report in the show notes so you can get a copy of that. Uh, Dr. Ziki, uh, thanks so much for taking the time. It's been great to chat with you, and I, I hope we can talk again soon. It sounds good, Chuck. I appreciate you uh, having me on the podcast. Now I look forward to hearing it, and of course I look forward to uh, continuing to talk with you more. All right, let's do that. You take care. Okay, you too. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care.
Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.